0: Everything Comes From Something is an unoriginal podcast about unoriginality because everything truly does come from something. I am one of your hosts, Isaac Ransom. I'm Cameron Tuttle. And we are so glad that you are here joining us, listening to the show. If you'd like to support us,
1: subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts, give us a five-star rating, and share the show with your friends and family.
0: If you have a couple bucks to throw our way, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ecfspodcast. And with no further ado, welcome to the show. So the other day, I was surfing. Do people even say that anymore? Surfing? Surfing? Do, can you surf Instagram? Oh, as I thought you meant actual I guess surf. scrolling. I was yeah. scrolling through Instagram, <laughs> and there was this ad for a car rentals app called Turo. Have you heard of this app? No. This is not a sponsorship. I was just genuinely curious. My friend recommended this app, Turo, to me, and it is a, like, how do I put it? It's a car rental service that is like person to person. So someone in your local area will rent you their car for a lower rate than a normal car rental company. And this private company makes sure it's insured, it's covered, it's ready to go. And it's like, you trade your car for a day. And as I was looking at this app, I was like, wow, this is so fascinating. It's cool. You know, you don't have to worry about being like 25, right? Isn't there some fee for renting a car if you're Mm -hmm. not 25? Like they waive all that. It's way simplified. It's, it seems like a really well thought out system. And then I go to the reviews, and there's this review. The first review, highest star rating, Karen, You're going to get a kick out of this. The first line is, this is why socialism works. (laughs) And I was just like, does this person know what socialism is? I was genuinely confused because it's a capitalistic transaction between two parties held by a private company, covered by a private company. The only government regulation that goes alongside it is... The natural regulation that comes with owning a car, driving a car, and the taxes of gas tax, which, Cameron, we know well, how you feel well, about that. Well, hold on.
1: So there is something to be said about the about capitalism becoming more and more of a share economy. Um, do you know about this concept? No. So a share economy is when um, things are not owned necessarily by, by normal people. So you don't necessarily own your car you just rent someone who has a car who has the ability to get you from from here to there and because we have the the ability to make that so cheap now then that's that's what's called a, sh- a share economy and so that's that's kind of in the same realm of it's not but it's kind of in the same realm of what originally they they were trying to do with socialism is instead of having everybody have their own property that they all have, everybody shares a certain amount.
0: Speaking of sharing, you should share this episode because this is Everything Comes From Something, episode 60. My name is Isaac Ransom. I'm Cameron Tuttle. And we have a special guest.
2: Mr. Von Rassler.
0: Mr. Von Rassler. Frank <laughs> Von Rassler. <laughs> Frank, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks. You're just silently taking well, in was, this whole uh, intro. I was, uh,
2: listening to uh, what Cameron said there about the share economy. Uh, the only problem with that one line is this is that the title of the car belongs to somebody yeah you know because yeah. it has yeah. to be registered yeah, exactly. to somebody so it's got it has to, somebody has that property title on it so again we're doing what we do with private property this isn't a government-owned property so this is far, it's the furthest thing from sharing yeah so uh you know you can talk about community property you know so uh you know maybe uh you have five families on a block and they all each contribute equally to a motor home so that they all can rent it for the weekend or they all can drive the motor home for a weekend and they share the weekend or timeshare. So kind of the similar thing, but still you have a a partial, (laughs) you still have partial title to something. Right. Well, and
1: then you get into the problem of of the commons. Yeah.
2: So, so it can't be public property. So that's not public property. So that's why that wouldn't work. And and then to your point that does this person even know what socialism really is? And the answer is most likely not. Uh, And, and that's the, that's the, the, uh, The crux of the matter here, I think, in this day and age is that there's so much, not just uh, cultural illiteracy, but historical illiteracy, uh, illiteracy in general and politics, that people don't understand things, and they have a... Uh, would you say, a rudimentary knowledge of things, what they may have heard in passing, and most likely is from that student who was probably sleeping in the back of the row. You know, wasn't paying attention in history class, and therefore they don't know anything. But, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about history as a history teacher. Uh, I I believe that history is the most, single most important class that you take in a class. Mm -hmm. And I know somebody says, whoa, that can't be true, you know, what about, you know, algebra? I said, well, you know, I've never gone through a store and thought about algebra you know i've never gone through life and watched a movie and thought about algebra or what you know what you know higher math it was to make that stunt work that that doesn't work for me when i think about history i, I think of as um, arthur m schlesinger junior once said of course he was a presidential historian uh, he wrote the age of jackson which was one of the best you know history books ever written on ja- uh, the jacksonian democracy but one of the things he said was really always stuck with me and I, I use this as an introduction to my class every year which is imagine if you were a person or you had a, a child or whatever and this person wakes up every morning not knowing who they are they have no idea what happened the previous day before they have no idea what their name is the only thing they know how to do is speak English let's say and uh, the Person like that might seem like oh that'd be like oh isn't that 50 days the first 50 days whatever it was I think it was a oh
0: you're I was like what is that movie there's a specific movie that ends like but she
2: knew who her family was but let's just say they don't know anything right right I said what would life be like and I said so I you know I questioned my students at that and of course some kids think it might be really cool I said no it'd be really frustrating think about it Uh, first of all uh, the impact that you would have on the people around you how would your your parents how would your mother how would your father deal with you knowing that uh, they love you dearly, but you don't even know who they are. So how can you love somebody who you don't even know? I mean, I, I, Cameron, you're a nice guy, but I really don't know you. So I can't say I really love you, you know, not sure. like my son, I can't say, you know, I can love this guy a little bit more, you know, cause I know him a little bit more, you know, he doesn't annoy me, you know, and things like that. And that's great, you know, and, and I'm proud of uh, the things that Isaac has done as, you know, uh, as, a, as a young man. I'm really excited that you guys are doing this. I think this is really cool. And oh, so we love an, doing it. I have an impression of you guys. But like I said, I can't really love you guys like a, like a family member. Um, and, and of course, you think about that person who, if this was one of you two, what, what would you do tomorrow morning? You wouldn't know what your future was like. There would be no future for you. In fact, there, there'd be no direction for you. You would have no link to the past. So if something happened in the family, would you show any family loyalty? You wouldn't know. Yeah. Well, why should I be loyal to you? But the the scariest thing about it, I said, is not that you don't have direction, you don't have a connection to the to your family heritage or your past, is that the, that you could be easily exploited by people who would take advantage of this because other people would know your weakness, mm-hmm. other people would know the consequence or, or not say the consequence, but the uh, uh, this disability that you have, and uh, they could use this to their advantage. Definitely. So if they say, hey, you know, you owe me seventy five dollars. Well, I do. Well, yeah, I gave them to you yesterday. You know, Annie up or hey, I thought you were going to paint my fence for me today. You know, and so there are people out there, and, and we have to understand that, that the vast majority of the people you may think are good people, and you can come from that position, but I think that people are generally selfish, and people always look out for themselves. And uh, and then there's some people who are truly just not nice, and they will take advantage of you. So uh, And then you think about what this would do to your parents. I mean, w- what would happen to mom and dad knowing that no matter what they do, you're not going to be able to return love to them? And imagine how their lives would be affected you know how much money would they spend on therapists how much money would they spend on you know uh trying to keep you safe i mean they would love you dearly especially mom you know because the bond of a mother to a to a a child is really really deep but would this cause friction between the mother and father
1: well and in my case i mean isaac lives with with his family stills but but in my case i wouldn't even know where to find my family and, yeah you know it's it's it would be the case that i i mean i probably wouldn't be able to get into my phone i probably wouldn't be able to get yeah get down here you know i i wouldn't know yeah, where you, wouldn't, you wouldn't you
2: wouldn't even know isaac you, know? you wouldn't know anybody yeah exactly but the point is is that i'd that, show
1: up you know i wouldn't show up for the podcast <laughs> right and,
2: and and this could this could cause a serious disruption in the family mm. unity itself i mean because you know families get divorced for lesser than that And so, you know, the the husband could say, well, this comes from your side of the family. Oh, no, this comes from you. And, and of course, it would be a lot of finger pointing. And, of course, the stress would affect their lives because stress does affect their lives. You know, uh, people could get involved in in, uh, alcoholism or other things that could, you know, to cope. They will find coping mechanisms. And in the entire family could be disrupted by one. The siblings could be you know, if, if, if let's say one of you had a brother or sisters, and they would look at, well, you know, he gets all the attention, she gets all the attention, why don't I get the attention? And and you could see a real chain reaction take place. So Arthur M. Sessions Jr. kind of pointed out and said, now imagine if you would, you had an entire segment of the population that was ignorant of our history as Americans. Mm. What would happen? Well, S- and we could see this today. Uh, you know, New York Times is published a thing, which they call the 1619 Project. And the whole purpose of the New York Times, and I see this, uh, you know, uh, certainly from the progressive movement today, is uh, to denounce everything about the United States as evil and corrupt because we started with slavery and our founders were slaves and George Washington slave and we're removing statues of people and want to change things here and there willy nilly. And we're inventing things that never really truly happened. And we're painting with really broad brushes that are, uh, historically speaking, as a historian, I would say, um, uh, egregious. And it's this, and again, when you have no point of reference, as because you slept in the class or you were not interested in history, well, then how can you defend it? How can you say, wait a minute, that's not the United States I know, hmm. that's not my family, and this is our family, our cultural heritage. And so, if you don't understand your cultural heritage, uh, how can you ever appreciate it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And also, I I saw a poll um a little while ago. Um I think it might have been a Pew poll, but um it was it was about it was just asking, you know, younger people about history. And it was something like I think it was like 40% of of people in the like, you know, 16 to 20 age range um were not uh, didn't know what the Holocaust was, mm-hmm. w- which is like insane. That is insane. I, 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 Holy I, crap! I I don't even know how that's possible. It was like it was something crazy. I, it might not not have been forty percent. Hopefully it wasn't. But well, that's just, just that's, like, that's cringe worthy. It, it
2: really it is. is. You know because when I when I hear you know. Comedians will go out on the street. Jimmy Kimmel will do this, and other YouTubers will go mm, out there. Yeah. and They'll interview people and say, "What do you think about uh, uh, the Electoral College?" Let's say raising tuition rates, and people will go, "Oh my gosh, I don't think <laughs> they should." You know, and school's hard enough as it is. You know, and you think, "My word, are you really that dense?" And these sometimes they do this on college campuses, yeah. which is even more frightening. That uh, you go. And I tell my students, I say, "I hope that, that if you ever get interviewed." That you never say that you were one of my students because I will be I will be so ashamed. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to tell you. But I, I, I do press a point that, you know, that like I said, you know, when we think about again from the individual point where somebody could be exploited well, I think that you we see this from politicians. They will exploit the ignorance of the masses. They will tell you that, you know, you don't have a chance. Hmm. Uh, They'll tell you that you've been oppressed and they'll tell you that there's a secret cabal of people out there. If it's, you know, the patriarchy or if it's, you know, now what's the newest buzzword, white supremacy. I mean, you you, you absolutely have to. I mean, how many of you guys, do you guys know any white supremacists by any chance?
0: I've never met one. I mean, I,
2: I have to tell you, I don't know one white supremacist. I've looked and looked around for these people. I have never found one.
0: Granted, we do live in the Silicon Valley, which is a fairly progressive yeah, state.
2: I've, I've been around the country and I used to be in the, you know, my travel with the U.S. military, you know, so I've been around the mm-hmm. world, of, but it's really hard to find these people. And if they do exist, and I'm not saying they don't exist, there's some, you know, some neo-Nazi group out there. But they re- represent just a small fraction of society. They wouldn't even. They wouldn't register as, you know, point zero zero one of the U- the United States population. Yeah. yeah. With, Doesn't
1: the KKK have like thirteen hundred members? Yeah. Or something? I mean, come <laughs> on.
2: You know, th- there's there's more people that probably are going to the YMCA than going to live in the oh, KKK. Yeah. So Be- I mean, just definitely. the point is here. You, you think, my goodness, I, I bet you there's more people listening to the what we're doing right now than are white supremacists probably Uh, in the Silicon Valley. That's probably close.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I (laughs) I hope. So so then, uh... then
2: then to infer that everyone who has a certain political point of view is now a white supremacist, again, using that term, and then telling people how bad the country is and how where our country is rooted in slavery and oppression, all that kind of stuff. Well, it's the only thing it's gonna breed, is gonna breed anger, it's gonna breed discouragement, and of course, also a desire to break away from the family that loves them. Mm-hmm. And so if you found out that your family, well, your family is full of, you know, ax murderers and drug dealers and things like that and you could, because you don't know anything about your family, you go, oh my gosh, I, I maybe I should not live in that house, mm-hmm. even though your family isn't that. So someone can easily exploit that for their advantage. I think,
0: yeah, I think the validity of what you're saying couldn't be more apparent, especially in the time. And I think the thing that I enjoy about talking about political ideas on this specific podcast is we try to come forward with a level of honesty and conversation. And that's something that's lacking in a lot of political conversation. You know, obviously, Frank, we're going to ask you about your teaching career and things like that. And we're definitely going to get into politics. That's where it's been spinning. You know, if that's something that upsets you, I mean, I just want to encourage you, like... Take some time to listen. You know, Cameron and I and, and Frank, I don't want to speak for you, but we come from more of a conservative aspect. And if you disagree with that, take the time, hopefully, to listen to this and disagree with it or dissect what we're saying. I mean, if you come from the same facet, you know, consider what you're actually you actually well, believe. Well, right. Th-
2: think of this, that, you know, a key aspect of a healthy democracy is debate mm. and disagreement. Look, we can't all agree on everything. And I guess what really irritates me as a teacher and certainly as it irritates me as just a citizen of this country and going beyond just being a classroom teacher is the fact that, you know, people are outraged by what you say and then think that they need to limit that. You know, say, hey, you can't say that because this offends me. Well, speech is offensive. You know, uh, I'm sure that, you know, whenever you have a discussion, you're going to offend somebody. And if you disagree with me, Cameron, you offend me. How dare you? So, yeah. I See, you don't have a right to offend me, but then, how do how do we have a speech together? Because you're allowed to offend people. Look at my views. Like my views, let's say on taxes, may not be your view on taxes. My view on, you know, whatever social things that are going on in the world may not be like your views. So, so let's have a discussion about them. And if we disagree, do we disagree? You know, what's the old saying? You know, we we agree to disagree. That's fine. But I think we live now in an age where. Uh, it, it's becoming like a police state. It's Orwellian. Mm. You know, you must agree with this, and this is the right kind of thing. You know, and I, I think I've heard that in China they have uh, when our tech industries, Apple phones and Facebook, etc., they have to run everything through the Chinese government, and the Chinese government now measures what you say, and they'll reward you citizenship points
1: whatever they are as long as you agree
2: with them and so it's called uh, a social credit score yeah social credit score yeah that's something what, what I heard and I thought well that's kind of isn't that interesting because that's kind of where we're at today you know I remember when in the 1980s when I was a college student they were talking about political correctness and my liberal college professors we're all aghast by it. Mm-hmm. They, because they they believe, that they, they were a traditional liberal of, you know, that you were allowed, no matter who you are, you're allowed to speak your mind. You know, uh, and that any kind of limitation of speech is uh, is the wrong kind of direction. But we've come to a point now where you can say whatever you want as long as we agree with it. Right. And that is a scary thing.
0: And I think it's exclusive to the area you're in or the bubble that you're sure. around. You know, we live in the Silicon Valley, which is much more liberal, progressive, Right. And people want you to agree with what they believe over here, right? And oppositely, you know, I've hung out with some people from Texas, which is hyper conservative. And I come from a a perspective where I love to be devil's advocate. I don't know if it's just kind of the jerk inside of me. I love to kind of just hear where people stand. I mean, one of my favorite things to ask people, you know, when they say, oh, I really don't like Donald Trump or I really do like Donald Trump, no matter what it is. Whether they like it or like him or not, I always ask, "What's your least favorite policy that he's pushed forward?" That is my favorite starter. To <laughs> and any they can't. Say they can't list it. it yeah. It's. Yeah. It's. I mean, you know, whether you support him or not, you should still have a least favorite policy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as an economist, as I'm studying, most economists disagree with trade tariffs, and so that's something that Trump is pushing. I'm adamantly. I adamantly disagree with it. I'm like trade restriction on free trade has always hurt growth of gdp for a nation historically it has not been a good move some people may disagree with that isolationists or you know nationalists might disagree well it's more pro-american but as far as i stand on a policy level it's like i hate that like i don't i don't appreciate that at all and it's like just something small like that shows that hopefully it's like i've taken the time to think about this stuff well good now we disagree on something that's right frank
2: a, get off the show yeah. you're from your band well, look at, I, I would say that tariffs can be good you know the tariffs are a way to uh, protect jobs in countries you know traditionally speaking tariffs have always been used by nations uh, go, going back as far as the early Republic you know when we create uh, things like uh, Henry Clay's American system for instance or protective tariffs were during the era of good feelings uh, the the attitude is is that uh, if you want to increase jobs in your country, you need to produce your own things. And you have to think about your citizens first. Uh, uh, Charles de Gaulle, the uh, famed World War II leader of France, uh, said that nations don't have friends. You know, So we, you know, we think about allies and friends, but nations have interests. And right. so when a tariff becomes, or you say trade interests, become punitive to your own people. And, as, uh, and I think we could say that certainly with the policies over the last few presidents that we've seen a decrease in manufacturing jobs in this country and the outsourcing of jobs in this country and we have uh you know our service sector is being wiped out i mean look at uh, california i mean middle class is disappearing and that has a lot to do with again poor trade policies and i well, think that, that 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 they're not to say that all trade and all tariffs are good you can't say that you can't fight with such a broad brush there has to be a certain amount a certain degree of What you say? um, Well, there's got to be the the Aristotelian golden mean, you know, not Mm. too extreme and not too uh, lenient. And I think that we've been way too lenient. And I think uh, under the the current president, which again I disagree with him on a lot of things, but on on that one aspect, I would have to say, you know, this works because we've seen over the what last 45 years, 50 years, uh, the United States decline as a nation.
1: I I think it also depends on the rules that you're playing by, right? So you, you you have if you have two countries who are um essentially, I mean, if you, if you if you have a, countries like like Britain and and America, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're kind of on equal playing fields. They don't have as big economies as each other, but you know, for the most part they play by the same rules. There's kind of a um like a a groundwork there, right? I think that makes a lot more sense to say yeah, let's have a free trade agreement. Let's, you know, let's let's not have any restrictions here. But with with a country like China who is stealing, you know, intellectual property, who basically doesn't have any rules for labor and is pumping government money into their into yeah. their economy, like I think that makes a lot more sense to say. Exactly. Let's let's restrict this. You know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah I think you're right. You know. It's so like if if I, when, I, you, when you play a Monopoly game, we all agree to the rules. When one one guy decides to change the rules, that and real, steal from the bank. It, steal <laughs> from the bank, which I've done as a, a <laughs> Monopoly player. Um, you know, you. It, that's when arguments happen. That's when families break up and uh, people go their way, and the board flies across the room and things like that. And I think that's kind of where we've been. And, and I think what we've had is. You know, successive presidents all the way from Nixon all the way up to, um, you know, President Obama, where they've just pretty much acquiesced to whatever the Chinese wanted to do because it makes us look good. And, and, and we want to look like we're, the, we're, we're taking the higher road here, but we've lost so much of intellectual property. Obviously, I'm a big guitar player. And, and I cringe when I see the knockoff guitars that are coming out of China that have American labels on it, even have the audacity to say made in the USA on it. Hmm. And that to me is just wrong. It's just, and I think that anyone who buys a guitar like that, I think they're just, uh, they're feeding the monster. And I, I don't think it, it, it helps American jobs. Look, if you want to buy a Chinese guitar, buy a Chinese guitar, but tell them, to take the uh, Gibson label off it, take the uh, Fender label off of it. I think it's just, I, I mean, who are you trying to fool? Uh, yeah. You don't really own a Fender and you really don't own a Gibson. If you really want a Fender or a Gibson, uh, then buy a Gibson. If you want to buy a, a knockoff guitar or a foreign made guitar uh, and it says, I don't know, uh, you know, Epiphone on there or Hondo or, you know, Yamaha, whatever it is that it says on there, then buy that one. But don't don't sit there and buy something that says
0: Made in America. Fun fact, on the intro of this show, the music, I actually play a guitar that Frank Von Rassler made for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is a Frankenstrat. It's on the wall right over here. That's right. And it's legitimately a Frankenstrat. Wow. Uh, It's a Fender Stratocaster put together from parts. You want to say anything about it? Fender
2: parts are all Fender parts. So it's a Fender... uh, Well, see, I I think it's a Mexican Strat neck and body. I stripped down the body to a natural finish. And then, of course, I put in uh, actual Fender parts into the... Uh, the pickup. So those are actually from a Fender guitar. And of course, all the hardware and everything else is uh, bought from the Fender shop. So it has everything on there that would be Fender. Uh, truly
0: American-made. Right? Yeah, well, yeah. I guess you say it's American-assembled. <laughs> yeah. I would say American-assembled. <laughs> but you
2: know, there's a kind of beauty thing about these kind of things. Is that, look at it, it's made mostly in Mexico. If you think about the the, the wood, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. cut there and made in made in Mexico, uh, which is fine because we have a good trading relationship with Mexico. Although NAFTA had its 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 weaknesses, uh, we saw a lot of jobs get pulled out of uh, the United States. And of course, uh, truckers really didn't like NAFTA. And uh, again, Mexico took advantage of NAFTA, began because of weakness of our political leaders who uh, were not in a, and many of them were not in a capacity to make you know, big business decisions. I always think if you're gonna make business decisions, send a businessman in there. You know, don't send in a guy like me, who's a historian, to negotiate trade deals. What the heck would I know about trade deals? Well, I just know from the history of of how trade should be done that it would be. You know, send somebody who actually knows something about the automobile industry, somebody who actually knows something about uh, you know technology or things like that, in there to say, "Hey, this is how it's going to work." Because, uh, I, like I said, we I think we've had a lot of I want to say well meaning people in there, but uh, I think that many of these things have a dark and dirty. Uh, strings attached you, know, you don't think that the uh, trade deals signed uh, that were done many of them in favor to let's say chinese government that the chinese government did not launder money or filter money into the politicians making those deals we we know now that uh, uh, the one of the sons of uh, president biden was deeply involved in these kind of things and making deals because again it's kind of a part of economic cronyism here or crony capitalism so uh, so deals that are made uh, that seem open uh, may have some shady things going on there. Somebody's going to profit, and that's why I think a lot of people are really livid about uh, what Donald Trump is doing because I think he's cutting off a lot of their their money, and mm. uh, that's why they're they're screaming like pigs. Uh, and I think it's a lo- one of the reasons why um, you know this big investigation on Donald Trump had been uh, been orchestrated. I think it, it when he was candidate and he was talking about NATO, for instance. And he was so critical of what NATO was doing and the NATO members were doing, which was they weren't paying their fair share, in which they weren't. Everybody was talking about how he was, you know, disrupting our alliance, and he's, you know, he's, you know, you know, bowing and kowtowing to our enemies and nonsense like that. And many people in NATO were fearful that this new president would come in there and cut off the gravy train, and so. Uh, there's uh, I, I think it's, uh, it seems pretty interesting to me, uh, reasonable to me, that the Foreign Services of England, and then we were talking about uh, uh, the, the guy who wrote the dossier, Steele, uh, MI6 agent, um, had to make sure that he had to undermine this, this, this guy's candidacy and his presidency, because they want to put him on the defensive. I, I think that a lot of the origin of this investigation on President Trump comes from overseas. Mm. Yeah, you know, they mm. wanted to. They, there's a lot of money involved in here, guys. So uh, it's not. It's not again like this whole idea of principle and oh my gosh, he doesn't sound presidential and all that stuff. It's because I think people are going to get their ox gored, and if you follow the money trail, it is one of the things I always tell my students: follow the money trail, and you find motivation.
0: You know? Oh yeah, I mean, we like just in terms of the things I'm studying in economics right now, something we're learning about is market failure, which mm-hmm. is where government is needed and government failure, which is where government fails to be benevolent, omnipotent, omnipotent and acting in the best interest of the people of the nation, mm-hmm. uh, which is how government is assumed in all economic models because we are just assuming everything away. That's what all my teachers say. Oh, <laughs> we just assume everything away in economic models. That's right. Um, which is, which is hilarious that, I mean, it's funny how, self-aware most economists are but then when they start speaking on a tv or for a political candidate they don't say anything about their assumptions they just say this is how it is right right um but in class we're learned we are taught to be like well nothing is concrete we're really just trying to pin it down on all these moving factors uh and this specifically regards to macroeconomics but um I am losing my train of thought. Where, where was I? Well, I, I think
2: to? we were talking about the principle of why people do things. The motivation behind it. Oh,
0: right, them. right, right. And we were just learning about government failure and how that links to the idea of lobbying and how nobody really like. Mm-hmm. seems to care about lobbying, and when they do hear about it, they get angry, but nothing's done about
2: yeah. it. Yeah, the, you know, we we, we always uh, you know, huff and hop, Oh, my gosh, the K Street lobbyists, and, you know, the, who's in the back pockets, you know, and we need a candidate who's not in the back pockets of, you know, so-and-so corporation. I mean, you know, look at, uh, again, when we look at the news media and they, how they um, they will... They'll go after one candidate because, uh, you know, his uh, supposed ties with whatever firm or whatever company, but they will leave another guy completely untouched. Uh, so you remember the Great Recession and one of the things that really, again, irritated me about how our government reacts to certain things. Uh, the Great Recession was we must now you know, provide an economic stimulus and we must bring it to these certain corporations. And, and, and I thought the one that really upset, upset me the most was when they were talking about General Motors and they said that it was, quote, too important to fail. The whole
0: yeah, too, too big, big to fail. Yeah, too big oh. to fail
2: and too important to fail, which is, in other words, why why shouldn't they fail? They had a poor business model. They put out really yeah. lousy cars. The cars were too expensive. You have, you know, uh, overpriced vehicles that uh, no one can afford. And if you were to sell them for what you actually put the work and the money into them, no one would want to buy it. You know, why would I want to buy a $90,000 Chevy Volt? Because I guess that's what it costs to build it. I don't know. Somebody said that to me. I don't know if it's true or not. So I'll just uh, put a caveat on it. But we'll just say, let's just percent it's a $90,000 volt. And you say, well, we can, no one's going to buy a $90,000 volt. Oh, my gosh, I'll get a Bugatti for that. Or get a, yeah. I'll get a <laughs> $90,000 Bugatti. Yeah, yeah, Where yeah, do yeah, I yeah. find that? Yeah, well, on use um, uh, Craigslist, I've seen them. Um, no, but he, obviously. Frank yeah. Retirement? <laughs> you know, <I'm> thinking, <laughs> thinking already ahead. But I, I would think that, you know, who would want to buy that car? No one would. And so who subsidizes the federal government subsidizes. And so in this case, when I, when they said too poor and fail and, you know, Osama bin Laden's dead, but GM lives. And they were really proud of the fact that they were able to take taxpayer money funnel into a poor business. But, you know, they didn't do the same thing for the little boutique shop down in Los Gatos, you know, a little boutique shop. Uh, they weren't too important to fail. They failed. They didn't say about the little, you know, tiny uh, manufacturing business that had, you know, 12 employees. They weren't too important to fail. They didn't get any subsidies. Right. And it's, why did they get the subsidies? Well, because they have a lot of votes. There's a lot of union members, and the union members are going to deliver votes, and you have, also have a lot of uh, people who were on the pension fund for General Motors. And so the United Auto Workers said, well, if you want, we we really want to bail out those pensions. They weren't really bailing out auto uh, the automobile industry. They were bailing out the pension fund.
0: This and is, the- I mean, this is what drives me crazy about the great recession It's something we study in my economics classes is that everyone that talks about the great recession, which we're talking about 2007, 2008, 2009. Mm. Um, even now it seems recent. A lot of my teachers talk about that. Like we're still pretty close to it, even though we're almost about 10 years out to even have a full understanding of what was happening in the economy at that time. Mm, yeah. But one thing that drives me nuts is that the federal reserve never takes any of the heat. Of the, of the Great Recession. And all economists point towards the Federal Reserve of having a huge play in why the economy failed. Um, everyone I talk to, whether it's at the... It just it happens to be family parties. Family parties is where <laughs> I get into political discussion. I don't know why. Um, but everyone's like, yeah, man, the banks, they screwed us. The banks screwed us over, you know? And I and uh, for just from an economic study, it's like, well, they were offering rates that were too good to be true Mm -hmm. people that took them couldn't afford them and couldn't levy the risk and the banks couldn't even afford it either. What allowed them to take that risk was the federal reserve, which was offering and saying that's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they're bailed out. They're too big to fail. And it's like, they should have failed. But it
1: was also, it was also, um, I mean, it was, it was coming top down from, from, from government subsidies too. Right. I mean, they, they were trying to incentivize, um, you know, low-income f- families to take houses that they couldn't afford. And so, and not only that, not every
0: bank practices.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. you can't do it with savings and loans. So, what right. you're talking about is Dodd Frank. Now, what right. I think was really egregious about all that is when, when it did hit. Uh, again, the uh, the progressive, uh, you know, mantra is, oh my gosh, that happened because of deregulation. They love to use that word deregulation, <laughs> and it wasn't about deregulation. It was about stupid regulations, and the stupid regulation was, as, a, as Cameron pointed out uh, correctly, is that, or I don't know if it was maybe you you pointed out. Um, Isaac, that that they were giving loans to people who don't really have the ability to pay back the loans. Look, if, I have, if I'm working for a minimum wage job, and this is this is this again is another thing that drives me nuts again about government regulation is such thing as a minimum wage, which is nonsense.
0: Price floor, agreed.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean you can't say Econ 101. Hey, let's let's, let's, ra- let's raise minimum wage to twenty dollars an hour. Well, if we raise minimum wage to twenty dollars an hour, will it still be
0: that's just net inflation. minimum?
2: <laughs> will it still be minimum wage? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So we raise it to forty dollars an hour. Will it still be Minimum wage? The answer the, is yes.
1: The real minimum wage is zero. as well, Thomas Well, exactly. Points
2: out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thomas Hole's is absolutely right because your your kids are going to mow the lawn for you and they're not getting paid for it. You know, they, they <laughs> got to do that after they, this. If, yeah, well, somebody has got to mow the lawn. <laughs> but, um, but again, uh, not to get off track here too much about you know what Dodd Frank did, what was was stupid regulation was, is that they were giving out loans to people, and of course it affects the natural order of. How the economy works is uh, Adam Smith and all those guys are right about the natural laws that govern us. An unwritten law here is that the uh, what when there is a demand for a limited amount of whatever it is, the the the, the price of that um, item is going to go up. And so here in California, uh, they were giving out houses or loans to people that really had no business getting a loan. They're too young or they they don't have the you know the 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 I want to say credit history because I don't want to talk about credit here, but they don't have the capacity to pay these things back. They don't have the discipline to live a life where they are required to you know, make monthly payments and do whatever it is that, that, that requires to actually be a homeowner. Or actually, what you should say the bank owns a house. You, know, you pay for the next 30 years. Um, and, and you're giving it to people who are, in a sense, immature economically speaking. And because you feel good about it and you say, hey, we're going to go ahead and give these people a loan anyways. And they were giving these loans, not just a, a traditional loan that you would get from a bank that uh, what they would call a prime loan is an 80 percent or 20 percent down. So we would call it a uh, LTV of uh, 80-20. Right. Right. So, uh, and the reason why the bank wants at least twenty percent down is this: in case you screw up or you lose your job or whatever happens, they can quickly release that house and sell it for twenty percent below market, so they can get at least their money back for the bank. Right. right. But what the banks were doing in this case was because those people couldn't even qualify for that kind of a loan because they don't have a twenty percent down that they were giving. You know, ten percent down, five percent down, and then in some cases they were actually giving above the rate. So let's say one hundred ten percent, and because the banks were looking at the real estate prices here in California especially as continuing to climb my gosh you know there was no depreciation of houses. Mm-hmm. I was in the real estate market I was a real estate appraiser and I remember w- writing about that we have a you know uh, a market that's uh, increasing in value so there was no depreciation. And it was more appreciating value. And that was kind of problematic because uh, it can only go so long and so far. But, but the banks were gambling on the fact that you could buy a house and give them 110% loan. So let's say the house is selling, we'll put it $500,000 and they're going to give you a $550,000. Well, what was a person with no um, fiscal responsibility going to do with the extra $50,000? What would you do? You're your young guys. What would you do with $50,000? $50, $50, uh,
0: in a uh, 401k or yeah, a mutual sure fund. Sure you would. And uh, <laughs> well, pack away for 20 most years.
2: Most likely, most likely you would go out and... Buy a car. Buy a car. You know. and, and go party with my Woo. friends and live it up for... Because I got $50,000 they didn't know I had in the bank. And then all of a sudden, uh, you realize that the interest rate that they gave you, which was most likely a variable interest mm. rate, would start now going up. And now you couldn't pay it back. And then surely and slowly but surely and, and then it became a cascading effect people began to just abandon their houses they just said I can't even buy the house and they would just walk out they wouldn't even tell the bank that they left and so you got you know communities in Tracy where you had abandoned houses with the grass growing you know you know five feet tall <laughs> and you knew that those people had left They put, and, and of course while they left they tore everything out of the house including the cabinets you know because they go well I'm going to take whatever I can oh, and, yeah. then and, was... talked, and then it was talk about predatory lenders but those loans that they gave were called Subprime, which I think is really great, which is yeah. <laughs> sounds really good. But the subprime loans were uh, were bundled by these banks, and they would then sell them off. And so you would see, hey, your your Washington Mutual no longer owns your loan; it's now owned by Bank of the West. And then Bank of the West says, well, Bank of the West doesn't own your loan anymore. Now it's owned by Co America Bank, and co America Bank then sends it to, you know, uh, Bank of America, and then Bank of America sends it to whatever the Huffington Fund or <laughs> these other different mortgage guys. And it was sort of like that musical chair game that used to play. You know, you have a little tune playing. And the last one holding the bag is going to get stuck with all that. Yeah. And yeah. that was really what caused the crisis. That's what caused the recession to begin because the bubble burst and all those loans were now in default. And so that caused a great deal, a chilling effect on the on the economy. And of course, the other thing, of course, that caused this chilling effect on the Great Recession was the media itself. And one of the ways that... Uh, the media operates because the media tends to be very liberal in almost all their views. They, again, I'm astounded when they say that I am uh, not liberal. I am, you know, we're objective. And I said, come on, no one's objective. Everybody's got a point of view. And, and the media loves to downplay the economy. We can see this right now. They're, tr- they're praying for a recession because this is their one. they know that as the economy is really good, it's really difficult to unseat incumbents, you know, when the economy is doing well. Uh, and so they're going to say over and over, this is all about uh, you know, uh, you know Donald Trump's inability to govern. He doesn't know what he's doing. If he comes into office, he's going to cause a recession. Well, the economy is roaring. It's it's amazing.
0: It is doing well. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the studies we've done recently, mm-hmm. University of Michigan puts out something called consumer sentiment, um, which historically has defaulted after capping at a hundred, hundred ten. Um, so currently consumer sentiment in the summer has been at a hundred and 110 and historically it drops. Yeah. Um, and when that happens, there has to be a correction. Well, well what
2: usually the correction happens is, is did 1929. It was, uh, you know, I think it was Merrill Lynch. One of those guys said, you know, th- a couple weeks before the, the crash, uh, now is a good time to get your economic house in order. And that's all they had to hear. And people went into a panic mode. And so what you hear again, um, in, The the years before President Obama got into office, the economy was actually growing under George Bush. It wasn't doing a really good job. And then the media started saying, yeah, but, you know, there's forecasters and the experts say that they predict a recession. And then, of course, when people think there's a recession, they then act upon a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so they're trying to do the same thing now.
0: I mean, possibly. I I also recently. no, No,
2: absolutely. True. They did this. Uh, they did this uh, when George W. Bush's dad was running against Bill Clinton. The same thing. The worst g- recession ever in history. This is the worst depression and and long. And this is the worst economy since the Great Depression. This, and 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 again, if you keep beating that drum over and over and over and over again, you know your life. Your camera goes. We well, you know. I know my life is pretty good, but I'm really worried about my neighbor. You know. You because know, you're not losing anything, but you really think that then it's everybody's having trouble out there. Yeah. And then th- then eventually, what happens is that people then do pull back and they do stop Well spending.
0: here well here's the thing. I don't I don't follow the news at all. As a matter of fact, I don't listen to any of that. I just look at the markets and the fact that the Federal Reserve cut rates just a month ago. And when they cut rates, they're usually trying to incentivize or encourage people to continue mm-hmm. to invest, right? Mm-hmm. And that usually also means that the market is heading towards a downward trend. But they cut rates and yeah. and possibly, you know, people could continue to invest and feel positive about mm-hmm. it. There is no for sure Statement about it. Yet, all my economics teachers are pointing the finger, laughing at us, saying spring 2020 is the worst time for you to graduate. You won't find a job. So I'm thinking about going into master's programming. <laughs> well, yeah. I, you know, yeah. Like,
2: and, and, and again, uh economists are really great at predicting things. So it's just like uh, people who predict the weather, you know, I mean, because yeah, yeah, you don't know what's right. going to happen. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, anything can happen. You can have a, a a catastrophe tomorrow, and then and then everything falls apart. You can have some kind of scandal tomorrow, and everything falls apart. And I don't, I don't foresee that happening. I, again, I think that uh, you can never predict uh, how the economy is going to go. I think some people would wish they could. I mean, if we could, if we had the power to be able to say the economy is going to do great now, and we have that kind of ability, then. Then we'd always have a steady growth, and you can't always have steady. You know, the business cycle is what the business cycle is going to do. It's going to go up and it's going to go down. Now, government can affect it and keep it down longer, as we did, I think, in under eight years of President Obama by trying to incentivize and, and and reward certain companies and and push certain principles. They did the same thing during the Great Depression with the New Deal. It didn't. Fix the depression. No, no historian worth his or her salt will ever say that the the New Deal ended the depression. Most of them will say World War II ended the depression, and
1: and it it made it a little bit worse. Right? Yeah, and made it a
2: bit (laughs) worse. Right? Obviously, some people say no, the depression continued into World War II. You know, and it was really after the depression when the Taft Hartley Act when you start pulling back regulations. Really, what what I'm saying is basically this: is that the government government can um, interfere with the recovery. And they can also help the recovery if they want. And the best way to help the recovery is allow recovery to do its natural thing. The natural laws will come back. You know, prices can't drop to zero on everything. Yeah. At some point, somebody's going to want at least one penny for what you have to offer. And then if somebody says, well, you can buy it for I'll give you two pennies for that. And then, of course, then you'll see the, the recovery takes place because that's generally how people are. Yeah. Um, I always say, well, if there's a depression, just don't participate in it and you'll be fine. You know, <laughs> there you go. Because you, know, you, you can you can sit there and, and just kind of you know, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, I don't think I should go out to eat. Well, if you don't go out to eat, then the person who runs a restaurant isn't going to get paid.
0: Or
1: get some stocks for uh, for a low price. <laughs> or get some stocks. Yeah, you
2: could. There's a lot of things. <laughs> there's and, a
1: lot
0: of profit in recession. Right. And Definitely. the thing is, Definitely.
2: again, and, and this was one of the problems during the Depression, uh, the Great Depression, is that the government was trying to manipulate people to do certain things, behave certain ways. They thought that if people just consumed, then, then we would end the Depression. And so they were, uh, that's why they instituted the Minimum Wage, for instance, because they figured if you have at least so much money, you're going to at least want to spend Spend the money. Well, what people did was they saved the money. Because listen, there's a time to save and there's a time to borrow. There's a time to spend and there's a time to invest. That's how business works. Anyone who has ever run a business will tell you that. There's, this is not a good time for me now to uh, expand my business because I'm not ready for expansion. But when they see that there's an opportunity to expand and invest, they will. And I, I think you can't force people, and government can't force people to do things. And which, of course, is one of the big problem with you know, the, you know, your planners, you know, in Washington D.C. or or the micromanagers or the, uh, the the pundits that you would see on television or the you know the men sitting and women sitting in ivory towers thinking they know everything about how something works, uh, and it doesn't work that way. The real world is way more fluid, and people's you know behavior is unpredictable in how people do things. So yeah, I, like I said. Uh, things will correct themselves by itself. So, I mean, how did we get out of other previous depressions? How do we get out of other, what we used to call panics? You know, government didn't involve itself in that. And government had nothing to do, many times when when the panic happened. So, you know, it could have been over speculation on people's parts or, uh, you know, a lack of, uh, you know, economic smarts when, when it came to investing their money. There's all kinds of things that can cause things.
1: But, but I do think there is a temptation on the part of, um, lawmakers to pretend like they're doing something in a lot of ways oh, yeah. they 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 have this they i mean it's an incentive for them right they they want to because they want to get reelected they want to make sure that they're looking like they're doing something yeah. and and a lot of times that makes makes everything a lot worse you yeah. know like it, it just it, cuz a they don't know what they're doing <laughs> and b they because they're messing with things that they can't control that they don't really know what they're doing if they they end up making things um, a lot messier.
2: Well, look, at it. what's the number one objective of every politician? Get reelected. There you go. Yeah. I mean, if you think about that, then it, that answers all your questions. What motivates them? So like, I, like we said, you're just talking about lowering the interest rates here. You know, uh, w- one of the main reasons why we lower interest rates is because it helps those who are in debt. Right. And you you actually are printing more money. So when the government is lowering interest rates, what they're saying is we're just going to put more money out in the money supply, what we call soft money policy. And that again was a progressive idea that began. You know, they were they were calling this in in the 1890s. You know, that they wanted the people's money, the people's money, the people. The populist movement was saying, you know, we need a coin silver, and we were on a hard gold standard because gold is a much more stable currency, and it would keep the economy in in a growing rate, but growing slowly. Well, if you if you owe a lot of money, and you uh, pour it into the economy, let's just say. Um, you know, your your parents have spent uh, X amount of dollars on your college tuition, or say your grandparents put money into you and say, well, I love my little Cameron. He's going to have everything that he ever wants. I'm going to make sure I'll, I'm going to not eat out. I'm going to put everything into a you know a mutual fund or whatever, a college fund for this kid. And it's, you know, by the time you're getting ready to graduate high school, let's say, and you're obviously graduate high school, you had $30,000 from grandma and grandpa. Go, wow, that's great. I can have at least one semester at, uh, you know, this school over here paid for, and then, then here comes some slick politician, let's just say his name is von Rassler, and he says, I just think I want to work for the American people, and I think minimum wage is way too low, and I think minimum wage should be at least $1,000 an hour. Well, what's that money worth now? Uh, That's 30 hours worth of work. Mm -hmm. And so so, uh, the way the government works uh, here is is in, uh, you know, they they have debts that they have to pay, and they can tax us uh, directly. You know, through an income tax or they can tax us indirectly through value-added taxes such as you know gas tax etc um, or they can give you uh, certain fees for buying your car or you know uh, you know registering your car so there's so many ways that they get money from you and that's still not enough and so the easiest thing for them to do is to devalue the money that you have in your bank account devalue the money that you have in your savings account devalue the money that you have in your 401k and so they' in a sense what they're saying is if I raise minimum wage or I raise, the interest to everything as high as I can. Uh, then we'll be able to pay off our debts, and so they owe hundreds and hundreds of thousands, of millions, trillions of dollars. So it's in their interest to, to lower the interest or lower interest rate to print more money to pay off the debt that they owe people, and so they're taking bad money and throwing at good money.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the one of my favorite things I learned in my money and banking course at San Jose State was my teacher was like. How do you stop hyperinflation? Just stop printing money. I mean, we were talking about Venezuela, Uh, Weimar Germany, and and it was like it was so fascinating because when we thought about like obviously it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. But like I was just it was it was so funny how simple that solution is and how impossible it is for the government to wrap their brain around that idea. Oppositely. I think that's what ended up happening in the Great Depression of 1929. They raised interest rates at that time when the stock market crashed, and that caused a huge issue because now money was really, really dry, right? Like they, like no one had it, and it wasn't flowing in.
2: Well, they wanted to de- incentivize people borrowing because that was a big problem. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, people were buying on margin, you know, and they were buying margin loans and they were buying on installment plans for getting things, it was a consumer economy that they wanted to buy, 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 buy without being really... Roaring 20s? Well, yeah, you know, people were trying to forget something, so you have to understand the roaring 20s and put them in the prism of what people went through. You know, we just had come through World War One, and many people were left with a lot of questions. And so a coping mechanism for an entire society was to forget that awful thing uh, you know, we had lost 150,000 plus doughboys. Obviously, Europe was destroyed by it and had, no one had anything to show for it. So there were a lot of people who were wondering, you know, have we been lied to? Uh, why did I survive? Why did I do these things? And, and the best way to put the ugly things of the world behind you is to live the life that you live now. And, and, and people became, you know, what's the old saying, YOLO, you know, you only live once. And that's what they were doing, that the pursuit of the 1920s was that the only thing that you needed to be is happy. Yeah. And what makes you happy? Well, some people like to purchase things that brings them happiness. It's just kind of mm-hmm. a joy. The uh, the serotonin fires off in your brain, and all the other little chemicals, and you're like, "Ooh, this is really exciting!" I love going to guitar showcase and looking at guitars, and and if I buy a guitar, it's even better. Or I buy you know just even strings, I feel really good about myself. And they
1: couldn't even drink alcohol either. And the, well, <laughs> you, isn't, that, isn't that ironic? You know the the, you know the the
2: biggest party decade, and they said, "No, you can't drink and uh, drink." And then of course, when the depression hit, they said, "Okay, now drink as much as you want." You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think it's kind of funny. But again, here we, we see, you know, again, the motivation uh, that uh, people have uh, for purchasing. thing could be whatever's going on in the world. And and at this point, you know, um, people feel optimistic and that's why they're buying things. So if you want to change people's minds about stuff, make them feel, you know, you know make them feel angry, make them feel worried, worry them. And I think the media is really good at that. So they'll they, they put out there that, you know, there's a coming war, there's a coming recession. Uh, we have, we, we perhaps we have a traitor in the White House and, you know, and 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 they want to build anxiety in people because when people are anxious, they don't do things like that. You know, they're not going to go out and say, oh, I'm going to go and buy things. So you don't know what tomorrow holds. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: I, I, I want to, um, I guess, switch gears a little bit because um, I think I'd like to talk about uh, teaching history and as far as the and you brought up the sixteen nineteen project, mm. and I think that's a really good um, jumping off point because what I see is a temptation from a lot of the media to create a narrative based on sort of a historical fact. Right? They they use a historical fact, they take it and they they interpret it in a certain way. And what, what I what I think we're going to have a, a tough time with as a nation is sifting out what is our what is our guiding narrative what is our unifying vision of of what america is and what america should be because for for a long time and even even growing up uh you know i i had this i had this idea of what um of what america was right there's there's a narrative that every you know every young american is told about you know our our country is built on liberty you know we we revolted against a tyrannical monarchy and you know we we came out uh you know against the odds we we beat all all the odds we dealt with a lot of 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 bad things that we were dealing with in our society but really our foundation was about was about liberty and about letting people live their lives um and and i think we're, we're we're coming against the temptation to spin that instead of having that be our unifying narrative and then having actually two different unifying narratives, right? It's our facts and their facts. It's our history and their history. Um, and so like what what role does sort of the the academic class or or history teachers you you know, you know that sort of area that you occupy what, what do you think their role is in, um building up something that that is a unifying narrative
2: well i i think uh, you hit a lot of points there and i think the thing i think about most is uh you know i wanted actually one time go for a phd and and I, you know, I got tired of uh, education as a whole. I was, you know, you can only look at so many books, you can only do so mm. many things. And I was like, Man, I'd like to get paid one time, you know, <laughs> instead of being a student, a perpetual student. But I, I remember how much I enjoyed it. And I did enjoy my professors, you know, um, they were all great guys and, and gals. They, they, they understood what they were talking about. But every single one of them, I think, understood uh, the foundation of the country. They understood the importance of uh, principles. I teach history and you know, one of my former colleagues, a guy who I have the, the utmost respect for, uh, Bill Holland, uh, he, I remember him saying, you know, you're a historian, you're a history teacher, you know what's important to teach. And one, uh, one of the purposes for history is to create citizens. Again, like I said, you know, you have to make people somewhat somewhat proud. You have to, in a sense, uh, instill patriotism Mm because a country without patriotism dies. If you don't believe that your country is worth fighting for. And and you can see this trend. This was a trend that began in the uh, 1950s and 60s, you know, after when the baby boom generation was coming of age uh, and the so-called counterculture was beginning to rise, uh, you had a very soft generation of kids people that got everything handed to them. Their their parents, which we call the greatest generation, they lived through privation. You know, they went through, they lived through the Depression. They lived through the war, but they never lost faith in their country. They believe in the Mm. goodness of America. They believe in what we call American exceptionalism. And uh, when the 1950s hit, uh, you saw uh, a a lot of these parents who had been traumatized by the Great Depression put all of their effort... And everything in it to make sure that their kids didn't have to live like they did you know right. during the depression their birthday parties weren't let's say as good so my kids are going to get everything they had a motto in the 1950s do everything for the kids and they really really spoiled those kids so if there's ever been a spoiled generation it's the baby boom generation
0: my parents <laughs> 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 uh, well yeah
2: I'm, I'm i'm the tail end of it so i guess i can say i'm i'm pretty spoiled but we we never really fought the the big struggle you know, yeah. and the one time when our country calls us up to say hey let's fight against international communism they—they, um, they, I don't want to say they dropped the ball but in many ways they did certainly in Vietnam but let me preface by saying why that happened um, so uh, from a psychological point of view or from you know being a sociologist and in, in history you're, you're a jack of all trades uh, you have to kind of think about the the mass mentality of people and, and one of the things that we noticed that ha- happened in the post-World War II era was that a lot of the soldiers, a lot of the men that came traumatized, came back traumatized from the war really didn't talk about it. I I remember my dad, he didn't talk about Vietnam. Hmm. He didn't want to share the horrors of the war with his kids. You know, we might watch it on a movie and say, ooh, that's cool. But my my dad really wasn't interested in those movies because, you know, he had lived through it. And I think a lot of guys in the, in the, that went through World War II probably would laugh at, and I had a friend of mine who was a World War II vet. He goes, "No, that's not how people die in a war." <laughs> you know, he would laugh at the Audie Murphy movies, and Audie Murphy was actually a veteran from the war. And he says, "No, that's not how it really looks. And World war wars a lot yeah. different." And so they 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 tended to, as men do, stuff a lot of their problems and their emotions. And uh, so the 1950s dads did not share things, uh, and the their ability to connect with their wife and kids on an on emotional level wasn't there. And so there was a sort of a distance. Mm. Uh, families uh, began, although the, we had the nuclear families, families were in a sense breaking down. And of course the natural trait of all students, or me, my students, I tell my students, my, my teenagers is really kind of go the opposite with dad and mom are. So if dad and mom really, really love the country, they're gonna say, oh, maybe I don't like the country as much because that's gonna get the attention I want. Right. Because they were seeking attention from dad. Dad and mom, uh, again, traumatized by the depression, were thinking, if I really want to make sure that my lives of my kids are secure, I'm going to go out and get a second job. I'm going to pay off the mortgage. I'm going to buy the things that I want to do. And it was a consumer kind of economy. And, of course, the kids interpret it as, well, I, I don't really want more toys. I want more time with you. And you're not spending any time because mom is working a job now. Dad is working a job. Right. And they, they resented it. And so some of those kids resented what their parents were we're doing saying uh, you know you don't you don't spend any time with me and you're only in, interested in materialism and so when you look at the counterculture part of the 1960s a lot of those uh, very liberally minded kids began to embrace things that were more important like love and peace you know those are things we can agree on those are the more important things it's more important to have love than have things and you should share with stuff and it was, it was really You know idealistic and they really thought that they were going to change the world with this way and many of them were in college and then they of course were about to graduate college and all the you know the talk of love and the idealism well now the reality hits you might actually have to go get a job and uh, they couldn't you know or they or they decided to go back to college and many of them became college professors and stayed in there but they still kept their mindset of. You know, I don't like the culture or the world that my parents created. It's sort of right. sort of rebellion against that, and so they they went into the marketplace of ideas rather than the marketplace of things, as uh, um, uh, uh what's his name, Robert Bork wrote in his book, slouching towards Gomorrah, and going into those things, they then dominated academia. They also dominated the media. So they went into the media, they went into into law, they wanted to change the world. So journalists didn't go in there to report the facts, journalists went to go, go report the truth and, and speak truth to power and, and to change the world. And I'm gonna go into teaching so that I can undo what Mr. Von Rassler said about the greatness of America and tell what really America is really truly like because that's what they wanted to do and of course many of th- they then began to dominate academia so i realized as i was becoming more and more conservative that i would never fit in with that crowd and just on that alone, I probably would have been rejected from joining the club of being the professors, because hmm. there's a certain way that you have to speak. And, and I've been around these guys before. I remember uh, going down to um, Los Angeles with my wife, and we were uh, having a, a Thanksgiving dinner with uh, her aunt, uh, who was you know, a college professor, and of course, some of their friends who were college professors. And they all talked alike. They all use the same word that makes them sound really super smart, which is, Indeed. You know, they don't say, um, uh, like the rest of us normal people. Do. <laughs> yeah, indeed, Cameron, indeed. you never yeah. listen to your show. In, indeed, indeed. <laughs> and uh, they I remember they were raving about President Obama getting elected because he speaks like them. He speaks in the academic stutter, which sort of uh, when you uh, you. Uh, your mind is uh, uh, working um, uh, so uh, You know, I got
0: to give quick, credit quick. to President Obama. He is a good speaker. Well, well, you got to well, give yeah, credit. Yeah,
2: but uh, there were times uh, when he, well, let's, none to judge us what, what, what we are. And, of course, they love that that speak. People love speech makers. If they don't like people get to the point. They, they you know they they couldn't stand George Bush and so I said well, it's nice now finally to have somebody who can actually speak and, and I, that's I thought,
1: that's why the and, academia loved right, Hitler right 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 and that's why <laughs> in, I said i, I said, yeah, it's, exact, true. It's, it's true it's true
2: it's absolutely 100% true and, and, and that's why i get really frustrated i said i don't really care how a guy speaks i care how he governs
1: mm,
0: yeah.
2: you know and, and they were really surprised because they thought i being an academic i being with a master's degree in teaching advanced placement us history and you know being an intellectual if you will you know so my to my own part uh, they they thought oh you're going to agree with me and i and they were really dumbfounded when I said no i, I said a lot has to be remained to be seen I, I'm going to be objective here and i've never i never opposed president obama on the part of his speech or how he spoke or 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 supported him because of his skin color or anything I, I looked at his policies and and I thought his policies were horrifying <laughs> you know I don't think you know he, he didn't believe in American exceptionalism and so he's a product of that 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 wave of people that came through the 1960s so we don't believe in these things. You know, we could see Hollywood uh, exactly. Hollywood does the same thing. So they rewrite history. they rewrite Things, you know, so you look at uh, movies and films. Yes, Frank. Yeah.
0: You better watch out. Cameron has a degree in cinema. So. Well, 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 then you'll understand. <laughs> I, just, okay.
2: I do okay. understand. Well, let's just watch this. Okay. So if we, we look at the 1950s and we look at some of the shows that came out in the 1950s and you say, well, television shows that were made for, for viewing audiences, uh, father knows best. My three sons leave it to beaver. What do they all have in common?
1: They're about the family.
2: They're about the family. And the father was the leader Mm. and the father had it together. The father was never the idiot in the show. Mm. And then you, you take a, take that snapshot and then you go to the 1990s or 1980s. And what does the father look like? A blundering idiot. You got Homer Simpson. No, I can probably, I know, uh, uh, Isaac's dad a little bit better. I don't know your dad, but I I know your dad isn't an idiot. I
0: oh, know he's no. he,
2: you know he's he's a he's a he's a intelligent guy who if there, guides a family.
0: If there's a word to describe my dad, I would say it's fairly stoic, mm-hmm. reserved, mm-hmm. and conservative in not in political view, but in nature.
2: Yeah, but um, but he certainly isn't. um You know the the the, the dummy like Homer Simpson who can't, and the wife has got it all made. And again, they're turning it up on his head because it was again against the patriarchy. And a lot of these people had a lot of father wounds that were writing these shows, and so you watch a commercial. And I was watching a commercial the other day where it shows this guy. He's trying to figure out what kind of car he's going to buy. And he's got all these things written on the wall. And, he's, she, she, you know, he's like, maybe I should get this. Kid. And he's got this all mapped out on the wall. And his wife says, well, no, why don't you just use this app, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, we'll have it your way. I heard that. Again, she's smarter than he is. I mean, and, and here's the thing. Is, I, I guarantee that most women would not want to marry somebody who is that slow with it and then with it. <laughs> Because you know you got to think about who's going to take care of you and how what, what your kids are going to raise like. You don't really want to marry dumb. Dumb looks really funny in high school, but dumb does not look good, funny as an adult. No. And, uh, and But I, but you see here, though, this trend. And what we're getting back to is this question about what academia has done with the 1619 Project, which is revising history and revising who, our understanding of who we are as a people. And I think it's a dangerous thing when you try to take away American exceptionalism or you take away the things that – yeah, we stumbled across history. Of course we have. But, you know, when people think, well, you know, we had slavery. Yeah, but we, we, we fought it. We're the only country in the world that actually killed its own citizens to end the damn thing. And – can I use damn?
0: Yeah, you're fine. I can
2: use damn. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> <The> FCC rules apply <laughs> here. I guess well, we're on a podcast. We can do whatever we want, but I won't cuss. But
0: we try to keep it friendly, family friendly. Well, un- yeah, unless it, you pay. Well,
2: well, you look at you look at you know when people say you know Thomas Jefferson he owned slaves, but you know Thomas Jefferson hated slavery, and and we can see that in the case of uh, the writing of the Northwest Ordinances. So when he wrote the Northwest Ordinances, one of the things that he barred from Appearing in those new territories that, that were eventually going to become states was no slavery was to be allowed there. Our framers had a, f- a hatred towards slavery because it ran contrary to our positions uh, as a nation. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's immortal words, all men are created equal there. Um, well, he's a slave owner, right? So how could he do this? How could he say these things? He had two slaves that fought for the um, for the British during the war. And both these slaves came back uh, after the war because the British obviously lost. And uh, Jefferson said, "I could not punish them because they fought for the very same thing I fought for, which was freedom." Hmm. You know, and and they they, they remained in bondage. But again, there were rules and laws that he was living under. That he under society where he couldn't get rid of slavery, but he certainly wanted to see it disappear. And they and they were working at it to see that you know if we could just maybe return these slaves. That's why they had, uh, you know, they found a. Um, a Monrovia, you know, they, 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 they found it, uh, yeah. Liberia, you know, that's uh, named after Mon- President Monroe, but they founded Liberia to try and get rid of this problem, this, this, this stench on our, on our history, and, and or stain on our history, I should say. But uh, in, in another thing that you can also understand about the, uh, the feelings of the framers about slavery was that when we look at the three-fifths compromise, and people say, well, say, you look at their, this, how terrible they see people as a three-fifths of a person, <laughs> but you forget the most important thing that they said about them that they were persons
1: well and also that it it was it was actually they were the idea was that they were trying to to go against the southern states right. you know the, the, originally they wanted the the slaves to not count in the towards the population mm-hmm. you know so so like the three-fifths compromise was so that they did um they counted so that this the south would would join up but that they didn't actually get the representation because they didn't vote right you
2: know right so so, so I and, mean, and what would be the encouragement then to if you want the representation what should you do yeah get rid of slavery yeah. so again was it was like a, a carrot hung out and form you No, know, if you just get away from the slave economy you're going to be great but i think you know you and i had a conversation in the break at one point where we're talking about you know was slavery beneficial to the country because the whole idea of the 1619 project is that slavery somehow made the United States great, and it actually did not. What slavery did it was stifled our growth. And, and anyone who is a historian can say that with honesty and integrity. You would have to really absolutely omit everything in American history to make the proposition that slavery somehow benefited what was going on in the northern industry. It didn't. No. You know, oh, unless you want to say cheap uh, labor for you know, cotton production, I guess, I guess you could make that connection. But when it comes to economic expansion, it wasn't, it wasn't nothing like that. I, I read a book by uh, Kearns uh, called uh, Team of Rivals. And it's about uh, the Lincoln presidency and all the guys that actually challenged Lincoln in uh, the election of 1860. That wanted all every one of these guys wanted to be you know, president. I, Charles Sumner and you know you know I can't name off the guys off the top of my head. I no know one know remembers the well, runners. Well, there's a bunch of guys in there. Let's just say the bunch, a uh, lot of the fellows there. And, and all these guys wanted to be president, but Lincoln somehow became this guy. And so he had, you know, guys that disagreed with him, guys that agreed with him, but they were all rivals in a sense. But but the, the one that really got me the most was the one on Secretary of State Seward. And Seward was, uh, you know, a, 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 a certainly an opponent of slavery. There's no doubt about it. But he and his wife decided that they were going to go visit some friends in the South. So they got in their carriage and they went down through the South, and when they got to, I think some parts in Virginia, uh, they the horses were being fed or whatever is they're being tended to because it was a long voyage uh, or trip. They they saw a a barn open, and inside the barn were a bunch of young boys that were chained up together, sobbing. And they were slave boys that had now been torn away from their families, and now they're going to be sold off in slavery. And Mrs. Seward looked at uh, her husband and says, "Let's go home. I can't take it." And she walked away. And the thing that you would notice if you cross that line, the the so-called Mason-Dixon line in those days where slavery was permitted and slavery had already been abolished uh, gradually in the north and had been disappeared for many years, is that you could see the the economic differences between the north and south so clearly. Yeah. Because you look at the uh, it's almost like as as a big of a contrast as what would have been in uh, the Cold War between East Germany and West Germany. Yeah. It was that this is West Germany, this is East Germany. You could see the lights you know, up and uh, commerce and people living happy lives in West Germany. And then you go to East Germany, is dark and gray, and there wasn't a whole lot of economic activity. That's exactly what it was like in the South. And the Northern, their Northern brethren were looking at the Southern and saying, can't you guys see the difference? The problem was with, with, with slavery was is that the, they were caught in a, uh, the slave owners were caught in this I don't want to say a tradition, but this, this, this false belief that somehow the more slaves that they owned, and the the more cotton they would produce, the, they, they could eventually build themselves out of, a, you know, or make themselves economically important and viable. But the, the the thing here is it wasn't working that way. They were becoming poorer and poorer and poorer. Uh, Hinton Rowan Helper, who wrote during that time, he was an... Uh, social commentary guy, economist, what do you want to call him? I don't know, historian. But he wrote a book called The Impending Crisis, where he was a Southerner talking about what was going on. Hmm. Southerners were losing everything. Uh, and, and if you look at the slave population there and who owned the slaves, it was a very small fraction of people who owned slaves. Yeah. But, but the point again here is the 1619 Projects is saying that this uh, this institution helped America become wealthy. It did not. It actually stifled it. And what, what, what evidence can we show that? Well, we would show that once slavery was abandoned, what happened to the United States, it grew exponentially. Economically, we have, you know, the Gilded Age, the, the economic boom that followed that, you know, the great railroad construction, yeah. uh, the rise of large corporations and monopolies. Well, all those things were being held back because of this institution. It think, was retarding the growth.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of—actually, is it the Reconstruction era that most of this happened? or the Well, industrial? Reconstruction
2: was still, you know, building the South back up. But, yeah, it was happening during Reconstruction. Uh, so the Gilded Age, people say, begins between, you know, 19, 1865 and, uh, let's say, 1885 or 1890. Okay. Uh, that's what people call the Gilded Age. And, of course, it had its pains. And, and people say, well, you know, how could you think that the Gilded Age was a great time? Well, no, if you lived it, you know, you worked for poor wages and we didn't have a minimum wage. And, and there was poverty and all those kind of things, which but, was a typical pains of growth with any kind of there was uh, country. There
0: uh, economic growth. At that time. Yep. We just did a podcast about mm-hmm. the Wild West, mm-hmm. the history of the Wild West mm-hmm. and how the railroad changed the cattle industry completely. Absolutely. Uh, and why there was a demand for cowboys and the gold rush alongside that. Right. Yeah, you Revolution. know, you should
2: to remember that when, you know, the, the primary industry at the time, the, the what caused the great growth of the United States in the post-Civil War era was the railroad. Yeah. And oh, we are yeah. talking about transportation. So look, the railroad had the same impact on our culture as the automobile does on, on the more modern culture and the way the Internet has done on, on our culture today is that, you know, we're talking about commerce being sped up. And so uh, cities uh, in the West sprang up and hotels sprang up and uh, that encouraged uh, tourism, that encouraged uh, immigration. And of course, the country then expanded during the nineteen. 19- uh, 19th century, second half of the 19th century. And so it had nothing to do with slavery. Now it had to do with free labor. Now the people that were working, they might have considered themselves slaves. They, they called themselves wage slaves because they worked for so little. And that's why we had a lot of union unrest. But every country that has ever gone through industrialization has gone through those painful periods. And that's one of the reasons why maybe like one when we opened up with the show with see how socialism works because people think socialism is great and there's no pain in socialism. Well, many people were crying out for socialism in that time because there was a cry of pain not necessarily a cry of this sounds like a great philosophy they said man I'm I'm, I'm I don't want to work for a dollar 25 at a week yeah You know, but
0: I don't want to pay two hundred twenty dollars. I'd rather be a slave. (laughs) And and
2: when Marx was criticizing all these things back in eighteen forty-eight, he thought that uh, this is what capitalism would always be. That it Mm. would always be this way. But look at what capitalism has wrought here in this country. The great freedoms have, and and the record of history is very clear. The freest people in the world, the, the the highest standard of living in the world, has come through this capitalist system, has not come through socialism. Socialism is sort of the only way socialism works is if capitalism is successful. Because then they can redistribute the wealth, but right, if you right. if you get rid of all capitalism, then you are going to wind up the way the Soviet Union was. You are going to wind up like Venezuela's today, where you are eating out of garbage cans. Yeah, so chasing down cows, and, and so but again, not to get too far off on a tangent here with the sixteen nineteen project, what is their motivation? My motiv- I think, what it is is to to dismiss everything that this country has really stood for. Uh, these are people who. I think have a loathing for our own nation, mm. and I think there's there's always a sense of guilt, or you know, some people call it you know social guilt. You know, we want well, Western culture is terrible. Well, Western culture is awesome. That's why people want to come here. Right. Look at look at the freedoms we have, and and for when people do what the '69 project is is doing, to me, it's not just a crime against our current culture, but it's a crime against those people who went before us because everything that we have, guys, uh, came at a price. Mm. You know. John Wycliffe, uh, John Huss, who preceded Martin Luther, were you know died. John Huss was burned at the stake for some of the things that he said. That Martin Luther was fortunate enough to survive, but Martin Luther had to had threats on his life. Martin Luther had to struggle with things. You know, uh, you know, uh, we had years of war and privation to guarantee that we would champion those ideas and so the ideal of of uh, innocent until proven guilty well that didn't come from nowhere that came through pain and suffering right you know and so all those traditions that we have in our western culture and when i hear people saying oh you know western society is terrible western side that well we'll pick one that's better and they can't you know they don't want to go live there you know if you think that the united states is a terrible place well pick a better country you know i think when uh, when Donald Trump said that about those uh, those Congresswomen. He says, well, "You know, well, why don't you go back to those countries where you were?" He didn't say like you get a, in America, love it or leave. It. He says, "Go fix those countries first, and then come back and show us how you do it." Because you know you can't sit there and tear down your own country and, and, and pick out cherry pick only those things that you want to do, and then say that's what defines America, and that's what the sixteen nineteen project is doing. It's really trying to get people to hate their own country, and I think that's bad. And again, for what motivation? As we said when we started this program.
0: I have a question for you, Frank. Yeah. Is there value in challenging historical interpretations? You know, we're talking about this idea. What was was the American something? American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism. Is there value in challenging that? When should we challenge it? Obviously, like, I think there needs to be a foundational truth Mm -hmm. when looking back at, at some history, but there has to be some value to it. I agree with both of you when you say that People have blown it out of proportion for their own agenda and they're pushing a different idea. Where I come from, I mean, we were talking before the show, I love to challenge what mm-hmm. people think, right? And and even, even second guess it, not for the sake... I mean, sometimes it's for the sake of my own pride, I'll admit it, you know? But at a, in other situations, it's almost to guarantee... Truth in the thought process of someone, you know, if you can challenge something and they can defend where they stand from in a reasonable way I think that's valuable, right? So where does that come into play when you're talking about? uh, American exceptionalism, how do we continue to challenge our government challenge our beliefs in a healthy way?
2: Well, first of all, you have to uh, agree. does. Is there such thing as American exceptionalism? I believe there is I believe it started from the moment that our country was founded, if you would say, or our, the, the the colonies were founded. Look at the 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 first Puritans that arrived here in the Great Migration, uh, you know, following the, the the initial planting of the colony there with uh, you know William Bradford, uh, a guy named uh, what's his name right here? Uh, I can't remember his name for some reason. I'm getting, uh, uh, I'll come to me real quick, but he he wrote uh, Jonathan Winthrop. Winthrop, he said, "We're a city on a hill." It cannot be hid, and he was talking about what we what we stand for, and they wanted to change the world by creating a perfect religious utopia, and that idea that we are exceptional for that reason, that we are here for a purpose that God had ordained them. That's how uh, these Calvinists would have seen it back then. Uh, that, that has that has stuck. Look, the reason why, you know, the New Englanders wanted to end slavery is because they believed that it was a blight on humanity because we, we're better than that. We're exceptional. The reason why we went and fought in two world wars was because we wanted to stand... The, we had nothing to gain by being in those wars. If you really think about it, um, you know, we're just going to lose people. You know, we, we don't go and take territory and say this is now going to be ours. And maybe through the manifest destiny, you might think that too, but, you know, but, uh, you know, post-manifest destiny time, what what interests do we have? You know, we want to spread our ideals, our institutions around the world. And Ask yourself this question. Would the people in the Middle East be better off if they adopted our form of government in our society? And the answer is, yes. clearly they would. And so why do we have to impose on people? No, we don't impose it. We kind of suggest it. Sometimes we say, well, dropping two atomic bombs is not imposing. Yes, I guess you could say that. But, you know, we didn't pick that fight. They did. And so, for Americans, you know, do you believe in the goodness of America? Do you believe that we're going to do the right thing? I had a an English uh, soccer coach stay with me in Hollister one time. We were, you know, we had these little soccer kicking, you know, the clinics that the little kids were in, and this, this British guy. He was m- more my age. He's in his forties. I was in my forties, and we were talking about, you know, history and war and things like that. And and he said something to me that I thought was really interesting. He says, "You know, I've never really ever under." Valued or um, held into suspicion American motives. He says Americans always seem to want to have the right motive for doing something that they didn't get involved in World War II because they could get something out. We didn't, you know, go to Iraq to get the oil for cheap. And, that, of course, that was what the uh, the anti-war movement was saying because if that was the case, why am we paying $4 a gallon of gas? You know, I mean, I wanted to figure that one out. We didn't go in there to get territory from Saddam Hussein and make this part of the United States. As some people say, we didn't go into Vietnam because we wanted mineral rights there. We wanted to say, hey, people of Vietnam, if you adopt our form of government, your life will be great better. And unfortunately, of course, that... that Idealism is sometimes hard, you know, because it it, it runs against history and against facts because the people in Vietnam were not necessarily interested in communism or interested in American ideas. They just wanted their own country for themselves. And unfortunately, the communists took over that. But needless to say, like I said, there is such thing as American exceptionalism. And I think what people are doing now is they're trying to destroy that idea. President Obama even said it himself. They asked him. They said, and no president. And. Previous to President Obama, and no, and of course I know the uh, the, the current president believes in it, but the, no president ever had said this. He said they asked him, said, "Do you believe in American exceptionalism?" And he said, "Well, yeah, I do. I believe in American exceptionalism, just like Americans believe they're exceptional. So do the Greeks think they're exceptional, and so did the Germans. And anyway, he talks about all these other countries who think they're exceptional, but that's not American exceptionalism. I mean, people, so so in other words, he's saying I don't believe in American exceptionalism. Everybody's exceptional. Nobody's exceptional."
1: I I think also what sort of sets apart American exceptionalism for let's say German ex- exceptionalism, mm-hmm. um, w- which which I think you could take a lot of parallels to is, um, you know, uh, sort of the German nationalist movement was was very much based on Germany as an identity, mm-hmm. the country, the nation as an identity, mm-hmm. um, and and America is is much less about the. Um, Oh well and then subsequently the people who are in that nation right so we are the German people we're the the folk Mm. you know we're the German folk Mm. and we are a nation under one banner under one identity um and and, an American um sort of the nationalist movement or the the American exceptional um idea is we're a lot of people under a lot of banners yeah. under one idea.
2: Yeah. And, and again, when we're talking about American exceptional, we're not just saying, you know, is America better than anybody else? Uh, even if I truly believe that, you know, uh, that, that's not the point. The point is, look at when the when the cramp hits the fan around the world. Who do people call? They don't call India. They don't call China. Germany isn't rushing to the to to the aid of another country that's being overrun. You know, so when there was uh you know, mass, uh, you know, genocide there in, in, in equatorial Africa. Well, you know, the UN is sitting on its hands and everybody's looking at the United States. Who's going to fund this? Who's going to send people there? Who's going to, you know, fight the famine in, in Ethiopia? Who's going to help the people who just came through a tsunami? It's the United States. It's U.S. Navy. It's the U.S. military that runs in there first and starts to help people. That's American exceptionalism. When we see there's a problem in the world, we feel it our obligation to do something about it. The Soviet Union didn't go in there and fix things; they always caused problems.
1: Well, they they went in and, and they yeah. tried they tried to spread things. Right. I mean, they, at- they were very. They also had that idea, though. Mm-hmm. They they also had that idea of um, where 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 the the Communist Party is is exceptional, right? They had right. this idea where where yes, we're going to fund um you know you know parts of china we're going to fund uh you know north vietnam we're going to fund iran like they always had these um these sort of pilot states uh because of of the same thing because of the the idea of that they held uh, you know their banner up to they they had this idea that that communism was was what was going to to free the people of, you know, well, of they, the they world. They had a wrong idea because uh, it wasn't exactly, going to do anything. Exactly. You know, it was
2: based on bad ideas from Karl Marx, and, they, they, and that's why it was never going to be workable because it wasn't working in the real world. Right. No, you it can't. wasn't
1: even working in their in, yeah. in their look state. At, look,
2: at, the United States was found on the principle of freedom, not on the principle of equality. Right. You know, and communism is all about egalitarianism. That comes out of the French Revolution, and that's why the French Revolution was a failure in my opinion. And People the French,
0: like, they're completely useless. Well, just no, I don't agreed. want to go that far. I have a lot of
2: friends who are French. They would probably take exceptions to that. <laughs> that's but okay.
0: They can be offended by yeah, they, it. I do not well, like the French uh, at all. Uh, <laughs> losers of the two
1: world wars. <laughs> well,
2: yeah, I know there's a lot of great jokes about the French and losing wars, but uh, but you know, the, you got to remember the French helped us in our revolution. Had it not been for them, we wouldn't have made sure, so it out of it. 1812,
0: you know, when we were getting kidnapped by British Navy. you know, Well, you well the French
2: also attacked us during the War of 1812, awful, too. useless. And that was big because we had a bad policy on the part of President Jefferson, oh, you know. Yeah, so,
0: no, it, yeah, yeah.
2: You know, so, we, but what I want to get off uh, get off on a tangent there. We can go into. Uh, we gotta
0: uh, we gotta wrap it up, guys. We're yeah. at an hour twenty. I love
1: right. the War of eighteen twelve. By the way, well, it's interesting it's, stuff. It's, it's one of my favorites.
2: But anyways, uh, like well, I don't. Know, I again, I I ran out of my. Uh, I'm running out of steam here. As I'm thinking of what I was going to say next, but it does. You know, I think uh, it's been a real pleasure, guys, to be here and, and talk with you guys. Uh, and I'm sure we could do this some other time and carry on in some other conversation. But. Um, yeah. Well, Frank, it's probably. great to pick your brain, man. I mean, how long you been teaching 25 years?
0: I think people can tell yeah. for sure.
2: Yeah. I'm so, pa- I'm so passionate about it. I mean, it's, uh, the, the, it has its, its pluses and minuses. I think, uh, I, I still love the kids. I still like teaching. I still have a passion to opening kids minds. I try not to change people's minds. Hmm. I tell my students never believe anything I say. So you always check it out for yourself because I, I, I don't want and because I, I, and I tell them what my point of view is. I say, hey, look I come from this position. Um, this this way they can filter it and they can and, and I welcome their their point of view. But you know since 2016, things have been a lot harder.
1: Have you, you, know? have you seen so. more of like pushback? Um, from from kids? No, kids are great. It's mm. it's usually administrators
2: and parents. Aww. So some so kid sweet. will go home and say share something and usually they're not gonna get it right anyways, because you know <laughs> how it goes. Kids are gonna they're gonna say, Well Mr. Von Rasper said this and I didn't say that and and then you're gonna get in trouble, you have to talk to the administrators and mm-hmm. and the world that we live in now is people are keyboard warriors and, and, and people are so easily offended with everything. And you gotta be really careful what you say. You know, and I, and I, and I, for me, that's a, that's a real problem because I'm an opinionated guy. Right, right. You know, and. If you couldn't tell. And and if you couldn't tell, you know, (laughs) and and I think that, you know, I like to tell things with humor and wit and things like that. And some people don't understand humor and wit. I heard that a good sense of humor is a great, a sign of intelligence. (laughs) So. Um, But anyway, what
0: about Homer Simpson? Well, but the the guy who (laughs) wrote it has got some intelligence, but
2: now Homer Simpson isn't funny. uh, His character is funny, but he himself is kind of pathetic. I wanted (laughs) to
0: compliment you, Frank. First of all, you've always been supportive of me. I mean, Mm -hmm. heck, you gave me this guitar, which is super cool. Uh, I never had you as a teacher, but I went to the school you taught at. A lot of my friends had you. They've only said good things. I consider my friends quite intelligent. Well, They don't agree with you. They don't always agree with you.
2: Well, I, I don't want anybody to agree with me.
0: But, but yeah. the friends that I've had that have taken your class, they've specifically said, Mr. Von Rassler has triggered some random kid in my class who freaked out about this thing, but it was a great conversation. Or I always liked how he was just honestly, upfront, straight yeah. with what he said. And like... I think that's a testament to your I teacher. I don't want to be
2: I don't want to be pretentious. Yeah. You know, I'm who I am, you know, and I can only give the best class that I can give. I tell that to the students and yeah, I'm opinion and yeah, you're going to be offended, but what what your job is in, in an open democratic society, and I want to encourage that is that you debate and you disagree. I don't want kids just to rubber stamp everything. I say, and, you know, okay, if you agree with what I said, fine, that's cool. You know, but I'm, that's not my purpose. My purpose is to get you to talk and also to talk to your parents. Because I, 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 li- I like that when the parents come say, Hey, you know, my kid comes home and we actually have conversations about what did Von Raster talk about today? Hmm. Because, you know, you know the, the, the sad thing is that many young teenage kids do not speak to their parents. And, they, you know, I think they've tracked them nationally speaking. You know, the average teenager speaks if you put all the words together at one time and put in one succinct sentence like four minutes a week and you're like oh my <laughs> word uh, what are you doing nothing there that counts as a,
1: I mean know, I remember a being
0: a teenager that, that's true <laughs> yeah and, and 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 so the parents are really happy that about that is that that but, is not true first of all camera we basically did this sh- podcast without microphones in high school so I don't want to no know no, no.
1: I remember not talking to my parents oh, oh right, parents. You right you right. talk
0: you guys
2: talk to each other you guys yeah, can't yeah. shut up <laughs> you know and that's why I know in my class but the thing is that I've noticed that a lot of kids don't connect with mom and dad and mm. and if they connect with and dad and mom and dad have a disagreement and they say, Mr. Von Raster is off his rocker. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm happy because they're getting another point of view mm. and they're getting they're. I'm not raising their kids. They're raising their kids. They're raising kids with the values that they want. And if their values are what, you know, what they believe about certain, you know, issues. I had a parent call me one time. It was livid with me because it was two days into class. My goodness gracious. <laughs> I mean, you already livid at me. And the parent was talking. We were talking. George Bush was president. W. Bush was president at the time. And she thinks that George Bush is an idiot. And I told him. I said, Look at the man isn't an idiot. You know, he has a couple degrees. He, you know, he flew a plane. If you if you're flying an airplane, especially a war uh, a fighter jet, you have to know some higher degree of mathematics which by the way I don't I I went to algebra 2 in high school and that was as far as I was going to get and not algebra 2 I mean in college I had algebra and that's what you need just a basic to get out of there I'm a history teacher I don't know anything about math I don't have no calculus trigonometry I think it's a foreign language to me
0: (laughs) But you and, hang out with Mr. Lynch all the time.
2: Yeah, well, you know, and, and he does... You know, he knows a little about history, and I know a little about math, and that's why we get along, I guess,
0: you know? Um, Cameron, so. you would... Actually, Mr. Lynch, Lynch is, is a, someone we should a, probably a, have someone on oh, the show. Oh, he be fine. Yeah? Uh, exactly. He, like, is... Capitalist through and through. Like well, he, he if bought you want his... to talk about
2: the rapture all day long. Talk about him. So that's, that, <laughs> he that, that, that's he
0: bought like this is this guy's awesome. First of all, he said some of the nicest words to me as I was graduating. Mm-hmm. I love this guy. But like he bought his own land and built his own house with his own hands. That's on awesome. This land. Yeah, that's really also, cool. He also makes
2: his own fuel. Wow! Well, I don't know if I should oh. say that on on, a, on this uh, is podcast. That, is but, that allowed? He, he he actually creates his own diesel fuel. It smells like French fries when he's driving his truck. Wow. It's Great. Wow! But but he's you know he's he's, he's really a really a brilliant guy. He's building his own airplane in his garage. Still, he's so, not yes. done. Oh, he's never going to finish that thing. Uh, I go over there every so often. I say, when is this going to fly? You know, and, and uh, he doesn't know. But uh, but he is he's he's highly intelligent. He's highly intelligent. He's one of the smartest men I've ever met, and uh, and of course opinionated. So that's probably no, why we got a, along so well. But we, you know, we we will always have disagreements on things, but we we do it in a, in a loving way. But like I said, um, teaching history these days is a little more challenging than it's ever been, right. and that's because of the I don't want to say the snowflake culture we live in, but it's the parents can be really. Uh, uh, um, really triggered by what you said. And since 2016, because Hillary lost the war or not the war, but the, <laughs> lost the, lost the, the, uh, the election. Oh my gosh. You know, and now, now everybody's just, just on edge and they can't tolerate anything, any kind of sense. So when this woman calls me up and I said, she says, I, I tell my daughter that he's an idiot and, and you're saying he's not, and I want my daughter to know that he is. I go, well, you know, then you know you're going to have a problem here. I said, but there's no problem. I can, I can easily move your daughter to a class. We have plenty of teachers here left of center that they, that you might be happier with. And she goes, Oh no, she doesn't want to move. I said, don't worry about it. I'll have it done. And I did it. I just talked to one of my friends who's a counselor and he said, well, you know, that's harassment of the teacher because it was, it was just really harassment. Mm. Two days in, you're already on my case about what I should say and shouldn't say in class. Uh, You know, we do have academic freedom to a certain degree, but that academic freedom is beginning to shrink away. And I think that eventually they're gonna fire people for saying what their opinions are. I'm, I'm just saying, you need to be careful what you say these days. And anything that you say can be Use as some kind of a you're you're discriminating or you're you're bigoted or whatever you want to say you say i i said last year that men and women think differently and you thought that i had just absolutely uh said that adolf hitler was a great guy <laughs> i mean it was it was astounding to me and i and i remember my 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 um, principal vice principal me in one time asking me about that. you know why would you even say that i go because it's true you know and this is this is not just it's not just scientific it's biological it's it's a fact of history that we've seen throughout the history people mm. be, women think things differently a different process than men do and to say that it's not even revolutionary but yeah. now it's controversial it's, so it's
1: just as observable <laughs> yeah i
2: mean that's why we that's why comedians have so much fun writing jokes about men and women mm. Because there's so much difference between the way we think. And it's not that men think better or women think superior. I didn't, I never said that. I said, we think differently and different is okay because we need different perspectives on things. And so my, my colleagues who are women think the process is different. They love collaboration. Let's say I hate collaboration because I don't get anything out of it. <laughs> a collaboration is a mandatory thing that we do at school that we have to break off and just Take basically office hours, and we take it away from the kids. And I don't see any benefit from it, but they think there's great benefit from it because, you know, their brains work differently than mine. Mm. So there you go. But anyways, that's that's what teaching is all about. These I'm still passionate about it. Um, I'm looking at the twilight of my career. I probably got five to six years to go, and then I'm done. And you know, if it wasn't for you know the 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 snowflake culture or the administrative burdens and all that kind of junk like there, I'd probably go 10 years. I probably have the energy to do that. Mm -hmm. If I could go the way it was when I first started teaching, I'd probably do it for 20 or more years, but there's no way I have the energy to do this again, you know, and keep this up because I think that it begins to wear on you. Yeah, It's a tough thing. Mm -hmm. So, and and, and that's sad because I think a lot, I I always want to, I say to people, you know, teaching is a wonderful career to pick. It's a wonderful occupation. It has, it's great you know rewards. If obviously it's not the paycheck, you know people talk about. You know teachers don't get paid enough. We get paid fine, but I, I'm not saying don't pay me more. But it's uh, <laughs> it, it has it has it's not what it used to be, as far as I'm concerned. And maybe it's because I'm getting old and we become a little bit more jaded and things like that too. But you know, and I'm not quite as uh, idealistic as I started. You know, I become much more cynical. As you get older,
0: that's yeah. all right. Join the club, Cameron yeah. and I are there already. <laughs> Nobody there. Well, that's too bad. Guys. I I just say,
2: keep keep some of your idealism I tell it to my students too. I said, guys, don't don't become like me. Don't you know? I, there's there's certain personality things that I, I I don't even like in my own personality. Uh, I know your sister's really big into the enneagram, right? Oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And they got their own little thing going there with their Instagram. Is there's a and,
0: podcast about that?
2: Well, I'm a one.
0: Uh, me too. Yeah,
2: and being a one has its 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 benefits and its drawbacks. And being an, and are you out. a wing nine or wing two? I'm just curious. I'm a wing
0: nine and wing seven. Oh, cool. I'm a wing. Well, I'm a I'm a one wing two, which means I am a great politician. well, well
2: I I would never good be a good politician. Yeah, I one would, wing nine is I, not for me. It would be one of those. I'm I'm like Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a one and Martin Luther saw wrong and he wanted to fix it. Yeah. And, uh, and, but there, there's a danger of that, of course, is your opinionate, And you know what people think about opinionated people?
1: They don't like them. They don't like them. Apparently. They can say they're ignorant all that stuff. Well, they're just, but... they're
2: bull. They're, 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 you know, you know, they're bullheaded. they 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 think they know everything. I think um,
0: it's a little bit of spice and, and, I mean, we got to wrap up the show because we're at an hour 35, Frank.
2: Woo! Oh, I'm sorry. But no, just, no, no. It's it was, okay. See, that's the it's thing. Good. When I get talking, I get into lecture mode. you got to get stop me from talking lecture mode. So no, go to specific questions. That you're I can...
0: good. But that's something that this show's all about. Everything comes from something. Originally, Cameron and I wanted the show to be about passion. Whether you like the person's opinion, whether you like what they do or not, it is enthralling to listen to someone who is passionate about what they do. And when oh, you talk awesome. about teaching, Frank, when you talk about history... You can see the passion come out mm-hmm. like you. I mean, once you got started, we couldn't stop you. Heck, this is the easiest show I've done probably in the last <laughs> six weeks. I haven't done, had to do anything. I just sit here and, and listen to you go, you know, and so we appreciate you coming out. Seriously, it's, it's great to hear. I mean, you have 20 years experience teaching and you still care about it. A little cynicism doesn't hurt. To me, it's a little bit of comedy, right? Cameron? It's fun. I'm sure you know Cameron do you have any closing remarks for the show oh no I'd love to have you back oh, yeah. definitely well, maybe we, talk
2: I, about, maybe we talk about something fun like music or something yeah, you know, I tell yeah. You what? Uh, I, Frank
0: Von Rassler can shred people oh, yeah? I'm not kidding no, you he can no, shred No, he can no, shred no, yes horrible. he can <laughs> I'm horrible I, I you know, I you was, built this guitar how, well, how could you not shred if you, it, you build guitars well,
2: because I, <laughs> if you're not good at uh, playing it you might as well build it you know, <laughs> I, I,
0: I, I was thinking I mean I know we gotta wrap this up but I would love to have you on. With I haven't seen Mister Mason in a long time. I don't know if he'd want to do a show.
2: Well, that's I, I wouldn't want to speak for him, but I'm, I'm sure he would. Uh, to have you guys debate would be. Oh great. no, no, we would just say he, he's smarter than me. I can't do that. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't debate with people who are smarter than me.
0: All right. Well, I think I think it would be fun to have some of the some of your colleagues come on for a show. It'd be a good time. Yeah, but. Anyways, we are glad that you came out to the show. For the rest of you, we hope you enjoyed the political conversation a little bit deeper and different than our normal show. And we will hear from, or no, you will hear from us next Monday. Everything Comes From Something is currently 100% fan-funded by listeners like you. And we wanted to shout out our executive producers, Darren O'Neill and Eric and Ariel Walk. Thank you guys for supporting the show at the highest level. If you want to support Everything Comes From Something, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can give a couple bucks our way and get access to our exclusive monthly podcast that is released at the end of the month on the platform through an RSS feed. If you don't have a few dollars... Again, tell a friend, tell some family about the podcast. That is how a show like this grows, and you can give us a rating on iTunes. We appreciate you guys so much, and we will see you next week.